0: Filling the cybersecurity skills gap by reskilling, Marriott's mega-breach driving tough California notification requirements, and why phones are still being shipped with access to insecure networks. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. It's the RSA conference next week in San Francisco if for some reason you haven't been made aware of that yet. The ISMG team is on site from Sunday to Thursday with studios at Broadcast Alley at Moscone West and across the street at the Marriott Marquis Hotel. Do feel free to drop by and say hi to me and the crew if you get a chance. It's hard to prioritise what to see, but one session that stood out for me was a panel discussion that's occurring on the morning of March 6th titled Building and Keeping Your Cybersecurity Team with Non-Traditional Staff. One of the panellists is an ISMG alumni speaker, retired Brigadier General Greg Tuhill, who's currently the CEO of Six Terra Technologies, but is maybe better known for being appointed by President Barack Obama as the first federal CISO of the United States. I spoke with Greg this week about his session and what is needed to plug the persistent skills shortage that exists in the cybersecurity industry. Here's Greg.
1: So there's a lot of effort now going towards what I call reskilling, taking folks from other career fields where they may be redundant or they may be underemployed, and then given them the education and the training so that they can go back into the, the marketplace as cybersecurity professionals and help defend national prosperity and national security. I'm a big fan of reskilling because I saw it work in the Air Force. Uh, for example, some of the best technicians that I had, enlisted technicians uh, in my cyber career fields, were retrainees. They had been, for example, security forces personnel, folks who were basically the military cops. And when they got to a certain age level or grade level, uh, generally as staff sergeants, they retrained into the cyber career field. I found that that experience that they brought to the table helped them become better students and ask better questions. And when they graduated from our training programs and came into the cyber career fields, they were well-prepared because not only did they understand the cyber bit, but they also understood the operational employment and use in other career fields and other lines of business. I I think that that same technique that we use in the Air Force applies extremely well in the private sector and in the government sector as well. As we look at folks who uh, need to pivot in their careers or want to pivot in their careers, I think that they would be an excellent and near-immediate ad to our uh, cyber workforce and cut back on that shortfall that we have. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information
0: security news. As may have been expected from some of the massive data breaches of recent years, more stringent regulatory oversight was likely to follow. This is what has just happened in California motivated by Marriott's disclosure of their breach in November 2018 of an event that began as far back as 2014. Here's ISMG's executive editor, Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz, with the story.
2: Good news for fans of data breach notification legislation in the United States. Last week, California Attorney General Xavier Becerra announced a proposed California law to close what lawmakers see as loopholes in the state's data breach notification protection. The proposed law would require a mandatory notification in the event that a breach exposed any unique biometric data, including fingerprint, retina, or iris images. Democratic Assemblyman Mark Levine, who authored the bill, says the legislation has been driven by the recently announced mega-breach of Marriott's Starwood Reservation Database. Marriott first disclosed the breach of its Starwood Reservation System in November 2018, saying it had begun back in 2014, before Marriott acquired Starwood in September 2016. But the breach persisted. At last count, 327 million customers' personal details, including names and addresses, were stolen. Other exposed information included more than 5 million unencrypted passport numbers. California Assemblyman Levine says he's also keen to see California remain at the vanguard of state data breach notification laws. When California State Bill 1386 went into effect in 2003, it was the country's first data breach notification legislation. California's data breach notification rules continue to be among the strongest in the U.S. And in 2020, a new California law will bring even greater privacy protection. The new law, AB 375, was passed last year by California. The privacy measure requires businesses to disclose the purpose for collecting or selling personal data they collect, as well as the identity of any third-party organizations that receive the data. Consumers can also request that their data be deleted and initiate civil action if they believe that an organization has failed to protect their personal data. Proponents say the legislation brings the state one big step closer to the privacy protection that the EU's General Data Protection Regulation now provides to Europeans. The proposed update to California's existing data breach notification law, meanwhile, would require that organizations notify individuals if a breach exposed an individual's first name or their first initial and last name, together with biometric information or the number of their government-issued ID. Already, the law requires notification if the name gets exposed, together with a broad range of other items, including medical information, social security numbers, or bank account numbers. Crucially, however, if information is encrypted, it does not trigger the breach notification requirement. As that suggests, breach notification laws, which are now in place in all 50 states, aren't meant and don't make consumers' data any safer. But they do require organizations that suffer a breach to at least alert affected consumers so that they can begin to take steps to protect themselves, including being on heightened alert for any fraud that might be made in their name. If that system still seems to favour the large organisations who gather people's personal information, aggregate it, and then sell it to others over the rights of victims, that's the situation that currently exists in the United States. For Information Security Media Group,
0: I'm Matthew Schwartz. Finally, the first ISMG Summit of the Year is coming up this month. It's our Fraud Summit being held in New York on March 19th. One of our guest speakers is Roger Jova, who is research scientist and senior security architect at Bloomberg. His session will cover protocol vulnerabilities in mobile networks, from GSM to LTE, and how they can be leveraged by hackers and fraudsters. I interviewed Roger this week and wondered why phones are not being shipped with default settings that make it more difficult for users to switch back to highly vulnerable GSM networks. Here's Roger's response.
3: But, but, yeah, I know a lot of people in my field. I, I've spoken with people that like, uh, you know, that, uh, in the DC area and people that I know. And we are all puzzled on how it is, is it still possible that my phone allows me the option to turn off, uh, LTE, yet I have no way of, uh, of turning off GSM. Essentially, if, if, if a, if a malicious adversary sets up a rogue base station on GSM in my vicinity and does the right things in terms of like what data to advertise and like what power to transmit and whatnot, um, it, it, it's not very difficult to get my phone to connect to that uh, base station, and unless I'm paying attention the whole time uh, to uh, you know on whatever I'm connecting to, uh, I, I might not notice that. So that's an interesting thing. I I, I know there's a, uh, you know there's applications and there's things I've seen it on Android uh, phone. It, it's actually trivial to do if you if you write your own app. I, I remember having a proof of concept app that would allow you to do this. But uh, there's ways in you can in which you can disable GSM. Uh, there's no need for GSM at all ever unless you're, again, you're driving through uh, like a, a remote area and you know you want to be able to have connectivity. There's some places in which like roads and whatnot where there's mostly only uh, connectivity with GSM. But in general, I would say advisable to just disable GSM. And and yeah, it's a good question. I, I don't understand why the industry um, uh, doesn't do that and implement that option. I, I, I think the one reason might be that they don't want to do that. It would be kind of like accepting the fact that everybody knows that GSM is insecure and should not be relied upon for anything that has to be uh, secure. Um, operators in general they are scheduling the sunset for gsm for like the next few years but there's still a lot of things especially in the iot and industrial control uh, you know um, scenarios that that leverage gsm so you know might be it's complicated to to guess what what would happen if essentially operators and like uh, equipment manufacturers they, they gave such an option they would be essentially they would be acknowledging that gsm is insecure and then what happens with all the stuff they have in GSM. So they might be just trying to be careful and stick, you know, you know, hold on to GSM as much as they can until uh, maybe 5G comes and they can get rid of it.
0: That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.